when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Uh, the Sunday school teachers, scholars, and preachers, and apostles, and bishops, and those who had just been licensed last week, uh, they were thinking to themselves, uh, who is this brother uh, who speaks such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, what are you all thinking these things in your hearts for? Let, let me ask you a question since you're so smart. What's easier? Is it easier for someone to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say get up and walk? Just so that you know that I am the Son of Man and I have authority on earth to forgive sins and also to release people from their physical challenges. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you right now, brother, get up and take your mat and walk. Immediately he stood up in front of all of them, took what he had been lying upon, and went home shouting, praising, and making all kind of noise. Everyone was amazed, and they were trying to figure out who this brother really is. This is Hermine Hartman with another cozy conversation. And today our guest is Reverend Otis Moss III. He has a new book called Dancing in the Darkness. And I want to read something to you from the book. Michael Eric Dyson wrote in the foreword. The name of the foreword is Black Coffee Spirituality. But it's the most beautiful introduction. And what he writes is, Otis Moss III hails from Black Coffee Spiritual Royalty. His father, Otis Moss Jr., developed his oratorical skills by speaking out against justice alongside Martin Luther King Jr. and became one of the greatest preachers in the history of American Christianity. Otis Moss III is a light coffee colored splash of Black masculinity a Hollywood handsome wordsmith whose sacred rhetoric drips with the imperatives of black prophetic urgency. His parish is a classic black coffee congregation shaped by the provocative oratory of its prezious shepherd, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. The name of that church is Trinity on the south side of Chicago. And we welcome you and recognize your book. We wanna talk about your book today. Dancing in the Darkness, Michael continues to say it is a brilliant and poetic meditation on how Black moral genius can transform America. That's quite a, that's quite <laughs> very a kind, call, very right? Kind. And it is all of that. So you said some, the book is beautiful. It's a Thank beautifully you. Thank you very much. written book. Uh, it is poetic. You say some wonderful things in the book, but they're, they're spiritual, they're justice, but they are reality. A lot of times ministers talk and they miss the reality, reality, right? I'm living this and you preaching maybe right. something else, but it's, it's real. You talk about, as a father, raising a daughter is hard. Mm -hmm. 
and that's a quote. And you say, it's from your daughter that the title of this book came about. Tell us about the dynamics of being difficult to raise a daughter these days. I think raising anything these days is hard. But tell us about tell us about that. What do you mean by that? Well, it, it always for everyone. It's it's a beautiful struggle to raise children, and whether you're raising a boy or a girl, there's going to be that there will be a challenge. But raising a daughter today, I think, is a unique challenge mm -hmm. because there are so many influences on a young on a young woman. Social media, for example. Social media. It could be just consumer culture. Mm -hmm. It can be their friends and their peers, which have a big influence on them. Mm -hmm. And helping your daughter know her worth, mm -hmm. who she is, mm -hmm. who she is, that she is loved, she is loved, that she doesn't need to be validated mm -hmm. by anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge in a society that is always telling black women mm -hmm. that you are not valid. Uh, you need someone else to validate you. And it's the role of parents, and especially, I believe, for a father to be able to communicate to his daughter that you don't need anyone else to validate you. You were validated the moment that you were born in, in this world, and you are surrounded by a uh, caring and loving, loving family. And I believe that that helps a, a young person make the appropriate decisions when they know that they are validated, that they're loved, that they are cared for, and they have all the gifts that they need uh, to do what's necessary for them to grow and develop in this, in this, in this culture. But daddies give those girls that structure that they need. I think, I think dads are, are very important. Very important. Uh, to have structure. a person in your life, to have a man in your life who wants nothing from you except to see you thrive. Mm -hmm. That's important. Grow. It's very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I talk to male friends all the time mm -hmm. about give that girl what she needs so when she becomes one, because you, you're setting her up mm -hmm. for a future for whatever her dynamics right. with her men will be. You're, you're setting her up for it. Absolutely. You're structuring her for it. Different than a mother. Very much so. Different mm -hmm. than a mother. Now, you talk about the women in your daughter's life, mm -hmm. too. Talk about that for me. Well, what's so powerful is is my wife, Monica. She is she's a woman's woman. Uh, she's had all these influences mm -hmm. of very powerful, strong women. In her her mother and grandmother. Her mother, her grandmother, her aunts. And ever since I met Monica, she has always gravitated toward elder women. Mm -hmm. So she always had these mentors who were like, 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than her. Where you and she learn. was com yeah, she was always comfortable. There is a, a Clotilde Rossborough from Denver, Colorado, who was was a chef and a cook of a of an old soul food restaurant in Denver, Colorado. Uh, there is, we call her Ma Harrell, uh, Willie Harrell in Augusta, Georgia, who became an adopted grandmother for our for our children. There was uh, Deacon uh, Deacon Thelma Hogue here in uh, Chicago passed not too long ago, who was 90-something years old and was a great friend to Monica, a great friend to our family and to our children. She's always surrounded herself with wise women who knew how to discern, who could see stuff no one else could. <laughs> smart living. Yeah, yeah, smart absolutely. Living. And you grew up in a household. Mm -hmm. You yourself, you grew up in a household mm -hmm. like that too. 
where I did. you had you had the mother, you had the men. Two, mm-hmm. two. It's it's important that you have a mother and a father. It, I, I had two very influential people in my life. Um, my, my my parents, uh, my mother, and my father. Both of them who were out of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. They met in in that movement and. One of the other big influences for me was my sister, who was this brilliant writer and poet uh, in in our family. She was a smart one. You know, everybody wanted to be you know like my sister Daphne. Older sister. Oh, she's an older sister. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Some there's something special about big sisters. Mm-hmm. So you know, when you when you're a little brother, you you're annoying, but at the same time, you admire. Mm-hmm. You know, your your sister. Oh gosh, yeah. That's that was she helped develop my love of African-American literature. Mm -hmm. So she would read me stories, but she would never read children's stories. She'd read Zora Neale Hurston to me. She'd Mm -hmm. read James Baldwin. She'd Mm -hmm. read Maya Angelou. I didn't know what she was reading. Uh, But when I got to college, I was able to quote Mm -hmm. and didn't know why I was able to quote. It was like, my sister read this Mm -hmm. when I was five, when I was six. Mm -hmm. And I had women in my life like that. And I had parents and a brother who were deeply committed to treating people right. That, you know, that black folk need to function a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know what you call them back in the day, uh, kind of the race man, race woman. Mm-hmm. So we joke and say blackity black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody who wants to make sure that we get not just a piece of the pie, but we're, we're, we're developing a foundation mm-hmm. for our community. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. A builder, mm-hmm. a community consensus, that dynamic is just critical. You talk about Dancing in the Dark and how the title came about. Mm-hmm. I was just intrigued with that. Tell me how, <laughs> how your book got its title. I, I appreciate you asking that, Mr. Um, <clears throat> That's a great question. It's a fabulous story. <laughs> well, it was in 2008 when Senator Barack Obama was running for, for president. He, of course, becomes a uh, uh, president. Uh, but as a result of that, uh, there were so many conservative, uh, how should I put it? I want to put it nicely. There were, there were conservative people, let me put it that way, in the media. Also racist. Yeah, very much so. Uh, <laughs> who were attacking our predecessor at Trinity United Church of Christ, Dr. Jeremiah Wright Jr., uh, many people don't know that I was the pastor at the time. Dr. Wright had already retired and I was working out. I was in Hyde Park working out at, it was Bally's then. I think it's LA Fitness now. And there I was doing my warm down and somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, isn't that your church up there? And I said, oh Lord. I looked up and there was Sean Hannity just, oh Lord. And that started the gauntlet, what we call it the gauntlet, where 40 news outlets showed up to Trinity Every single Sunday. International news. Absolutely. Uh, we had, I didn't even know of anything called, I think, Der Spiegel. I think that was the German newspaper that showed up. Le Monde, which was the French newspaper. They, they were all out there. And it became so intense that we had to hire security to do uh, security before every service. We had bomb sniffing dogs. We had to check out someone's purse, any you know, handbag. And then Dr. Wright had to get personal security. I had to get personal security. We had to have 24-hour security at the church, my house, uh, for Dr. Wright. And it just became uh, just an an immensely stressful time period. And the death threats then started. You're trying to keep church together. You're trying to keep family together. You're trying to keep Wright together. 
you got a whole lot of dynamics. Got a, we have all that's going on at the same time. And then we're starting to get the death threats. So the letters, the emails, you know, we're going to bomb the church. We're coming to get you. If we catch you anywhere, we're going to take you out. I mean, that was consistent. And we had to turn everything over to the Secret Service because they had to investigate to see the, the legitimacy of every death threat. So it got to the point where if I saw someone walking down the street, walking toward me, I mean, I was nervous thinking like, okay, do I need to be ready? What do I need to do? Put my wife on this side of me so I can make sure that I can block whatever. I mean, I, it was that intense. And protect the children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had to have a uh, security person who was stationed at their elementary school that had to sit down with the teachers, the principals, everyone to say, if you see someone that you do not recognize, you are to immediately call the police. It got that bad. And one evening, we heard something. I couldn't sleep most of the time. One now, evening, all heard, of this is based on a sermon of Reverend Wright's that was taken terribly, terribly out of context. One minute. Mm -hmm. I don't even know it was a minute. I think it was 15 seconds. <laughs> um, not just the sermon. And then from that sermon, all these conservative bloggers and whatnot, conspiracy, conspiracy theorists and whatnot, they, they just start throwing this stuff out there that uh, this church is dangerous to American democracy. It needs to be taken out. I mean, just in it got so bad, Sister Hartman, that when we would do the altar call, do you know people would sneak into the church and would record people at the altar as they were praying and then ask some questions. Said, do you know such and such? Did you hear that sermon? We were like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to pray. I mean, it, it was that bad. So one evening, we were supposed to be asleep. It was about 12 or 1. So it was, it was late. And we heard something in the house. And Monica was like, you need to go check that out. So I grabbed my rod and my staff that comforts me. <laughs> it's a Louisville slugger. And went around the house looking to see, you know, what's going on. And I'm thinking in my mind, is this the moment? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to defend mm -hmm. my family against someone who's been listening to this trash mm -hmm. on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And I hear the noise again. And it's coming from my daughter's bedroom. And I go into my daughter's bedroom. And there is Michaela. She's dancing in the middle of the room. Pigtails just going back and forth. And she's saying, look, Daddy, I'm dancing. And it's probably about 3 a.m. How old is she? She was five. She was five at the time. And I had to preach in a couple of hours. And I said, you know, that low fatherly tone, baby, you, you need to go to bed. Right now. To go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and she just kept dancing. And that's when the spirit spoke and said, look at your daughter. She's dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but it's not in her. And that's when I changed my sermon that day. And I wrote until the sun came up, stepped into the pulpit and told the congregation that we're called to dance in the darkness, that we are, if we're going to dance, we're going to dance with joy. If we're going to change this to democracy, we're going to dance with justice. I mean, I just went through the whole thing about what does it mean for black people that we've always been dancers and we've always learned how to dance in the darkness until the sun comes up, because it's never that the sun runs from us or hides from us. It's that the earth has turned away. But if it keeps turning, eventually joy comes in the morning and God will turn your morning into dancing. Such a beautiful story. Well, thank you. And 
you got the symbolism and the meaning out of it. She's mm. five years old. Mm -hmm. So she's she was a teacher. She was a teacher, mm -hmm. and she was protected, so she didn't have the fear. Not not at all. She wasn't thinking about any of this. This was all her dad. She was being a five year old girl dancing in the middle of the night, unabandoned, just just having having fun. Quite a story. It touches my heart. Small businesses are the pillars of our communities, and they deserve our support. The BMO for Black and Latinx Businesses program provides that support by giving you better access to educational resources, partnerships, and funding. BMO has already made an impact by providing financing to more than 1,200 businesses throughout the Midwest. Business owners who are part of the program benefit from a wide range of tools, webinars, and coaching to help you focus on what you do best, and that's growing your business. Meaningful partner connections give you access to professional networks and alternative funding resources to help your business scale. And funding for your business comes with expanded credit criteria and competitive interest rates to help you obtain the working capital that you need to succeed. If you identify as a business or Latinx business owner, BMO Harris is here to help your business thrive and create capacity to grow. Learn more at bmoharris.com slash black and Latinx. When a bank helps you make real financial progress, well, that's the BMO effect. They are just saying that it's not a matter of being healed because if I can get them in the presence, because the presence of Jesus is enough. And that's sometimes I say to every parent, that's all you can do for your children. You cannot tell them what they are to believe and how they are to operate. But if you bring them to the presence of Jesus, eventually, maybe 10 years later, maybe 15 years later, they will remember what you did and all of a sudden it will click and they'll remember mama praying. They'll remember grandma praying. They'll remember that they got where they are, not on their own power, but because there was somebody working on their behalf. You talk in the book about being a young person in this society today, contemporary society, mm -hmm. living now how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many media messages. We're living mm -hmm. in a media age. Um, and the media messages can, do cause confusion. Mm -hmm. You talk about a young lady uh, from your church mm -hmm. called Terry mm -hmm. in your chapter called Pardon Our Dust, Meet Failings with Grace. Tell me about Terry. It's quite a story. Yeah, Terry was is a, a wonderful young lady. But Terry's story was, as many young people, uh, she became enamored with a young man uh, who she thought was was cute, but happened to be someone who sold uh, some drugs on the side to make ends meet. And she was asked to hold something for him. And that's when she was picked up. It was a drug package. It was a drug package, yeah, it was weed. That's, that's what it was. He, was. he was selling weed, just like a lot of, a lot of people do, and now is legal. Uh, for a lot of people who now are millionaires selling mm -hmm. selling this. And she was then going to be expelled, not from her just her school, but from the Chicago public school system. Because we had a no tolerance policy in the city at the time. 
which means if there was an infraction, there was no idea of grace. It was just like you have to leave. And if you are expelled from the school system, what's your alternative? You can go to private school, go move to the suburbs. I mean, literally, you're literally putting a young person's uh, out of the school system and basically putting them into uh, the quote unquote underground economy at that point. So we'd had a great relationship uh, with the family and she was a, a person who was highly participated in, in ministries, the church and whatnot. And so people from the church and myself, we came to her hearing. At the, the school? At the Chicago Public School. This was, this is was the board. This is the Chicago Public School. So it was just the school. This is the board. And once the board witnessed all these people standing up for this young lady, they said, look, what you did was wrong, but of course, we're going to give you a second chance. Hmm. Changed her life because her life would have been altered. Now, she was ready to go to college, right? She had been accepted. She was ready to go to college, but that would have, her, her college acceptance would have been removed if she had been expelled. So from, a life just kind of wiped out oh yeah, before absolutely. you even get started. And, and that changed her life. But the painful thing is when I remember coming out from the hearing and there was a bench on the outside where, where young people were to sit for the hearing. I come out from the hearing and there's a long line of young black men with no advocates. So here is Terry. She's got five, six, seven people from different organizations saying, we believe that she will be successful. And then here are these, and all of them were almost all in the exact same position. And they're waiting for their hearing. They're waiting for their hearing. No one's with them. And every single one of them were looking at the floor. Every single one of them had their head down like this, not making eye contact with anybody. And I thought to myself, what would their life be if they had had a community if they had advocates, but we have a system that doesn't pardon your dust. Just like when there's something under construction, you put a big sign out there that says, pardon my dust, I'm not finished. It's the same thing with these young men. You know, we should have a system of rest restorative justice and not retribution. 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Do, do you really, are you really formed as a human being? No. At 13? No. And, and so it was just very painful. And so I used the story to really talk about restorative justice, the, the, the idea of we want to restore people to what they are to become. But the moral of the story is Terry had support. Terry had support. Terry's doing great. Terry's a business owner down in Texas now. She's doing her thing. Finished school, oh, yeah. business owner. Oh, yeah. Terry's, yeah. Terry's doing fantastic. Yeah, her sister moved down, moved in with her. Her sister just had... Uh, <laughs> just had twins. Her, her her mama moved down there with them. They're all living in Texas now, doing exceptionally well. Graduate of Prairie View A&M. Awesome young lady, doing exceptionally well. But one moment mm -hmm. that could have gone very differently could have derailed her for the rest of her life. Wow. How has ministry changed since the pandemic? Uh, I sense, I don't know mm -hmm. this, it's a question, mm -hmm. but as I read your book, you you were writing and you talked about moments of crises. Mm -hmm. You talked about moments of right decision, wrong decision. What mm -hmm. decision do I make? How do I make it? Mm -hmm. Where's my justice? Where's my love? Where's mm -hmm. my morality? Where's my right thing? And the pandemic 
isolation, mm -hmm. loneliness, at home, all of the things that you can't do. And we're still in post-pandemic. Right, right. We're still Absolutely. coming out of it. Right. How has ministry changed and how has ministry also been challenged? That's a great question. Ministry has changed, I think, on one on, on, on one side. You closed for the, the, church. For the, the church. Your church was closed oh, yeah. during pandemic. Yeah, we're trying to and that was safe. the law yeah. of the of our city. Yeah, we oh yeah, definitely. We we closed down. And our church grew in the process of closing down. Mm -hmm. I mean it grew exponentially. Um, because we did uh, virtual mm -hmm. and we didn't just do the typical virtual. We said, look, I come out of a filmmaking background. I want to be a filmmaker. So one of your majors, but not I, I, well, I was going to do cinematography, but I ended up switching to religion and philosophy. And, but I've always loved film, still love film to this, to this day. And so we created a very unique kind of virtual experience for, for, for people borrowing cinematic techniques uh, and the church grew as a result. But the, the big challenge for, for the church is we in the midst of this moment, America, our community, the black community is facing the biggest mental health crisis it's ever faced in this nation and it's really been caused the catalyst has been the pandemic mm -hmm. and many churches because they have been isolated around being in a building mm -hmm. and not realizing ministry isn't about the building mm -hmm. uh, ministry is wherever you go is should be ministry. You shouldn't be locked into a building. You shouldn't be even locked into a particular neighborhood. You should be locked into alleviating suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so the church has been challenged because it has not been equipped to deal with issues around mental health, to deal with issues around public health, because I use the term public health over public safety. Because right. I want a healthy community. That's right. A healthy community is always a safe community. That's right. You know, and we have to begin to think through how do we create a healthy community? And a healthy community is not a community that sends in 300 officers in your neighborhood, sends in social workers and mental health counselors. Mm -hmm. It makes sure that there are parks and gardens and elders are taken care of. You create, you create an entire um, ecosystem mm -hmm. for people to flourish. Mm -hmm. That's a healthy community. And many churches have had this strange Western white model of we're just in this building right here and there. When the black community, the black spirituality has always been the hush arbors where church is down by the riverside, wherever God is. And where is God? God is everywhere. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm by the river, whether I'm by the park, whether I'm on the street is where ministry happens. And that's the kind of ministry that we have to create the ecosystem for thriving today. Mm -hmm. uh, so many churches grew. I had, I had, uh, I had ministers come to me and they wanted me to write a very negative story on the mayor mm -hmm. for closing the churches, mm -hmm. but letting the liquor stores stay open. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to, and I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And my reasoning was, she's trying to save you. She's trying to keep people healthy. And mm -hmm. I, I refused to do that. And I said, but let me teach you how you can do 
ministry online mm-hmm. and it might help you. Well, right. They were worried about their dollars. They were worried about their donations. And I said, take that away and let me show you another way. Mm-hmm. So we start showing ministers how to do mm-hmm. virtual and every single church grew. I have one minister, he grew from 500 mm-hmm. in the congregation mm-hmm. to 5,000 mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. and he did not miss a dollar. He right. gained. Mm-hmm. So I guess all that to say, we live in this digital society, so Gotta you know, get with the get with the program, right? That's right, absolutely. Get with the program. I told the people at the church, I said, the reason is that you you all can be upset with me all day, you all day long. Mm-hmm. My job and my responsibility safe. is to keep you safe. And That's I said, right. I want you to see Jesus, but not too soon. <laughs> not, not this week, huh? That's right. Not this week. Um, your book is a poetic meditation, as Dyson points out. And you talk about black moral genius Mm -hmm. transforming America. Mm -hmm. Give me a brief synopsis of that, what that means. But black moral genius is is Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. is is Howard Thurman, is is Maya Angelou, is Toni Morrison. Um, Black moral genius is is Harold Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, Black moral genius is able, is having moral imagination, Mm -hmm. creating a world that is not yet, but operating as if it already is. Mm. The deep belief that this new world can be created. And that's all that black people have done. The reason our democracy in this nation is of such and has expanded, it has nothing to do with pilgrims, has nothing to do with the founding fathers, has everything to do with black people. No George Washington. No, no, he ain't got nothing to do with it. No, no. See, even the founding fathers had to borrow from the indigenous Iroquois Mm. to understand root decision making. Mm. And it's been black people who've expanded the rights every time. If you're talking about the labor movement, if you're talking about emancipation, if you're talking about women's suffrage, you got to go and talk to black folk. Mm. So anything, everything, I have a pen that says uh, everything wonderful in America came from black folk. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's true. It, it really is that when you look at the history of our country, every time we fought for something, it wasn't just for us. It blessed other people. There's a poet, and I'm awful. I can't remember her name, but she comes from the 18th century. Mm-hmm. She was a poet. She was a writer. She was an advocate. And she went to the women's suffrage, white women's suffrage. She's the only black mm-hmm. to speak on freedom. And she opened her remarks by saying, you all talk about your rights. I want to talk about your wrongs. Mm, mm. Isn't that powerful? That's mm-hmm. one of the most powerful things Ooh, I, love I think that. I've ever I She love said, it. You, you all fight for your rights. I'm fighting for your wrongs. Mm. Isn't that powerful? I love it. Reverend Moss, thank you so much for joining us today for a cozy conversation. But most of all, thank you so much for dancing in the darkness. Thank you it's for having me. It's a wonderful love. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I, I hope your I hope your congregation is reading it and really kind of understanding what you were going through in your heart and in your mind. And you produced a beautiful book that many can benefit from. Thanks for being with Thank us. Thank you today. so much for having me. Mm-hmm.
need to give God thanks that your mat is under your arm. You need to tell your children and your children's children that I got a mat up under my arm. And you need to let everybody know that it was God who delivered you. And I can imagine in my sanctified imagination that my man was going back home. He had his mat up under his arm. He was on the corner and people were saying, hey, there goes Tyrone. And Tyrone, he's walking now. Tyrone, how did you do it? He said, I had some friends who brought me to Jesus. And when I was before him, he said, take up the mat and walk. And all of a sudden, my legs got stronger. My hips got stronger. And now I walk. And when you walk and you haven't walked before, you can't walk like everybody else. You got to walk with a swagger. You got to do a little dance when you walk. You got to shout when you walk. Now, I know some people say it don't take all of that. But if God's ever done anything for you, then you've got to open up your mouth every once in a while and let everybody know what God has done for you. If somebody tries to quiet you down, you say to them, it may not take all that for you, but when I think about the goodness of Jesus and all that God's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah. Is there anybody in here? Has God been good to you? Then you ought to open up your mouth. Has God ever blessed you? Then you ought to open up your mouth. Has God healed you? Then you ought to open up your mouth. Sit back and relax. Educate and inform. Cozy conversations. Drop the knowledge that's for real. Indigo Studio. Always in the know. With Hermine Hartman, you'll be enlightened. Amen. Amen.